Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. And welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here from the Santa Monica Studios on the heels of another major championship for Novak Djokovic and the second for Ash Barty. Great guest for you this week, a tennis journalist who uh, has been featured on many networks, CNN, ESPN, 538, Tennis Congress. I'm getting long-winded trying to just read all her (laughs) credentials. But it's Amy Lundy, also a podcast host of three a tennis podcast here on the Tennis Podcast Network with Gil Gross and Joel Drucker. Amy, thanks for joining the show. Hey, Mitch. Glad to be here. Thank you. Always wanted to get to uh, catch up with you, but I think this week is very relevant given the fact that your podcast focuses on the three greatest male tennis players of all time, and uh, they're all tied now in uh, major championships with Djokovic winning his 20th major, his third, having won all three majors this year. And uh, I think we can kind of start with here. If we're going to use the word 20, just go back, use the number 20, go back 20 years. And I remember Pete Sampras was just trying to find major number 14. He was on that journey to get to 14. Yeah. 20 years later, three guys have seven more majors than he had. It's, uh, it's been a remarkable era. And, and dare I say, you know, we're underselling just how golden this tennis generation has been. Absolutely. It's a really a privilege to be able to observe this. And I was sort of a, a general assignment sports reporter for most of my career. And then I stopped for a while to have kids. And what brought me back into sports journalism was the three guys here, because I knew that we were witnessing something really special. And now it's come to this symmetry and this this fruition of three guys and a mind-blowing 60 Grand Slam championships. And if you stop and think of it, it's um, something that you start to wonder, have you seen this kind of thing, not just in tennis, but in, in all of sports before? This sort of triangular rivalry and um, it's super special. They've won 60 uh, majors collectively. And uh, I don't, <laughs> you can basically <laughs> compare those three to all the other greatest tennis players. That's how collectively they've done it. I want to get to the match in particular. Uh, Djokovic wins in four sets. Little symmetry there with how he started the tournament, loses the first set, and then wins the next three. Yeah. Amy, the margin for error with this guy is just slim to none. He doesn't give you anything. Berrettini, much like Shapovalov, played well, like did some great things out there. During the Shapovalov match, Jim Courier said if he was playing immortal, he might have even won in straight set Shapovalov in this match. But I, I just think with how consistent he is, with the fact that he recalibrates, I use that phrase better than anyone, when he loses a set, when he faces adversity, I don't think I've seen a better problem solver in the sport ever than Novak Djokovic. I agree with you. It's interesting to me that the takeaway is that Shapovalov and Berrettini played well. I think 
I have a little quibble with that. I think they did play with a lot of heart, both of them. And and in that situation, you know, you, you really have to tip your hat to them for playing with, with a lot of guts and stuff. But I don't think either guy had a particularly good game plan against Novak. And um, I would have liked to have seen Berrettini come in more. He's, he's tall um, with the grass surface, you know, accentuating the, the serve, and he's got a great serve. I, I think that if he had um, beat Novak to the net, and then look, it seemed like Novak was anticipating it because Novak actually came in a lot, almost this entire tournament and in that match, and, and played the net very well. But it's just like, how many times do we have to see and be told that you cannot beat Novak Djokovic from the baseline? Yeah. That's not going to work. So I just wanted to see something else in terms of a tactic. I think well is a relative term, and I agree with you. I think he played, you know, well isn't good enough to beat these guys in a big stage, especially best of five. The game plan, mm -hmm. I agree, but on the other side, I mean, what game plan does work to beat this guy? So it's it's just it's easy to say like strategically, why don't you try this? But they would probably push back and say, what <laughs> we've tried everything over the years with this guy and we can't. And I do think though, Amy, that with his fitness level and how mentally engaged he is, not taking anything away from his major count, but the fact that this is best of five, that that's the task. Like how are you going to beat this guy three out of five sets, similar to Nadal, all those French Opens, Federer in his prime. Djokovic, as of right now, is just asking that question. How are you going to finish me off three out of five sets and no one can do it? I think you raise a great point, Mitch, because so many people who saw that match and, and saw Novak really throughout the tournament said he doesn't have his A game. And, you know, what what's wrong with you people? You can't even beat him with his B game or his C game. Actually, I do think he had his A game in terms of if you think of tennis as being more than just stroke work in terms of the mental, like you said, and the physical and the tactical. I thought those three aspects of Novak's game are about right now. They're about as A as, as you can get. Um, yeah, you might say, you know, he, he didn't hit as many winners as he did against Medvedev in the Australian Open final, which was a complete annihilation. But, um, you know, when, when you step on a tennis court and you're playing a match, you want to figure out how you're going to win the point and, and how are you going to get errors out of the other person. And to me, Novak is an absolute genius in that aspect of the game. I think as well, I agree with you. There's another side to this coin, and it goes back to tennis history. The greats in the game, we can go all the way back to Bjorn Borg and his Wimbledon and French Open runs. They play themselves into form for the later stages of a Grand Slam tournament. So by the end of the tournament, there might be some hiccups early. The Australian Open this year was a great example. Novak had the injury. He had some sluggish performances, five sets with Taylor Fritz. And then all of a sudden, by the final weekend, he's playing his best tennis. So uh, I, while well, I, I understand the sense that, you know, the B game might have been what he had out of the gate, these guys, are, these guys and girls are gaming for and, and primed for that final weekend when they know they'll have their best game ready for them. Yeah, and I think with Novak, this is somebody that, his greatness and how he dominates is not perfectly obvious to the naked eye. You know, even 
me and I, I sit there and I chart the match sometimes and, and try to figure out what zones he's playing and what patterns he's playing. It's not obvious to me exactly how he's doing it. Um, but it, it really is um, a matter of calibrating uh, match by match and uh, getting errors out of your opponent and um, playing with, with a tactical genius and a, and a mental acuity that he has. I know you're heavy in analytics, uh, but I got to imagine like for some of his matches really early on, you're like, well, this is this is I don't want to say over, but this is trending in a way where I'm not going to be having to chart much more. Because it just right out of the gate, the way he plays and, and his all core, like you mentioned, coming to net, his serves got better working with Goran Ivanisevic. There's certain trends with Djokovic where you're like, well, if it's all together, like what's <laughs> what's the point of dragging this on? Yeah, and I don't um, I don't do predictions. That's the one thing I don't do, just because. Well, there's a lot of reasons that I don't, but I do like to analyze and um, bring viewers and listeners little tidbits that they might not be aware of, so that that can enhance their enjoyment of the game. Um, and for me, you know, round by round. And looking at the the various matchups, including Shapovalov, who's a lefty and has a different kind of a backhand, I just didn't ever think that Novak was going to be troubled by any of these guys. And um, that ended up being the case. And, And really interested to see how he develops going forward. You know, as I mentioned before, the one thing that really surprised me was how much he served and volleyed in this tournament, because he did. It wasn't like a a staple, but it was definitely a surprise tactic that he used a lot. And he he came to net, and he played the net exceptionally well. So now he has three years, at least, we'll see how this one ends, three years with three Grand Slams, 2011, 2015, and now 2021. So that's a 10-year difference, too, which is insane. Yeah. Do you think Novak Djokovic is a better player at 34 than he was at 24 when he started dominating the scene? Yeah, I do. I think he's peaking right now, which is fascinating and in and of itself. I mean, you mentioned Borg, who retired early. And um, now, if think if Novak had retired at that early age, think of all the great tennis that would have been left on the table. So um, I do think he he improves. And and of the three guys, Rafa, Roger, and Novak, I think he's the one who's the most willing to tweak his game, to take risks, to make changes. Um, And I've seen video of him on the practice court where, you know, you would think that Novak has these things down cold, like um, his serve, the the backswing and the little technique. No, he's still tweaking. He's still working on it as as you or I would on the court. And and that's really cool to see. But right now, I think he is peaking. I I agree. And it's just insane to think about a 34-year-old guy in this sport. being at his best, being better than he was 10 years ago. He's got three of the greatest tennis seasons ever. This will be obviously the greatest if he keeps it going. And now it's looking like a Golden Slam possibility. I think the Olympics, the the challenges there aren't necessarily the field. It's dealing with the, the protocols. And I guess you could also say, Amy, the best of three format. That's what's done him in in the past. So it's maybe a little more risky going into maybe the U.S. Open where best of five he knows the venue. He understands how it's going to work. It, it won't be as strict. Best of three Olympics is what would maybe 
worry me from predicting Golden Slam, which is still just crazy to think that's possible. Yeah, he's got a big decision to make, and there are a lot of pros and cons on both sides. And I think for me, just being completely honest, the biggest worry for him is actually COVID. Um, because I know he's had it before, but you know, reinfection is a possibility and there's a state of emergency in Tokyo right now. And I, as a fan, do not want anything to get in the way of his potential to take a shot, to shoot his shot at the calendar slam. So it's like, oh, you know, do you really have to do this, Novak? But then again, I'm not Serbian and I certainly understand the, the pride for country that he has. Um, and, and how much this means to him. So he's got a lot of pros and cons that he's got to go over, and um, it'll be like an outrageously difficult decision. Very tough indeed. We know that the U.S. Open is where he'll be going for all four majors in a row. Um, and not just because it's your podcast three where you've been talking and mm -hmm. dissecting these guys, but I feel like I feel like it's not a weight has been lifted, but it's going to be bare uh, in the relative near future, if not already, because... I don't know how much longer, if it is even now, still a debate, like what this guy's doing. And you know, we talk about the comparative of who the greatest is. He's in a position now, Amy, to put some significant distance between him and the other two guys with how he's playing, with how his career is shaping up, with unfortunately the age and the form of the other two with injuries and whatnot. I don't foresee this being a debate much longer. Well, look, I'm a fan of all three, and people don't believe me when I say that. It's hard um, to be. <laughs> it's, it's not, I, it, you know, it's like hard wax to be and, yeah. It waxes and wanes. Sometimes I'm, I'm thinking a lot about Rafa or Roger or, or Novak. Early in his career, I was a huge fan of Novak, and then it went down a little, and now it's back up. You know, So I am a huge fan of all three. Um, and my stance on GOAT is GOAT is reserved for – when you, there just isn't any more question anymore. Like Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, like it's all the records plus the other stuff. And, and by the other stuff, I mean like the things that Novak is trying to do off the court with the PTPA, whether you agree with it or not, he's trying to make change, which is insanely difficult when you're trying to go for the calendar slam. And he's, he's also engaged in, you know, environmental issues and, and all sorts of stuff. It's stressful. Um, and these are the things to me that, you know, like the things that Muhammad Ali did being a conscious, conscientious objector, and um, that kind of thing. These are the things that that make somebody the goat. Um, so he's definitely headed in that direction. And I think, um, you know, calendar slam puts him there because there's just no question. And uh, even if he doesn't get the calendar slam, going ahead and in, in, uh, grand slam tally would also make it pretty unequivocal. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Amy Lundy on Tennis Channel Inside and on the Tennis Podcast Network. 
it just has so many metrics with these guys like the weeks at number one the masters titles grand slams coming i mean it's it's been it's been incredible to watch novak djokovic work uh, i do want to uh put a bow on the men's side of things djokovic wins another major but the other obviously minor story in all this is that you did have three first-time uh, semifinalists that accompanied him there. Now, it was Djokovic's tournament, obviously, but Herkosh, Berrettini, Shapovalov, and I think this was the first time we saw a little bit of a youth movement in general. It wasn't just one player, one young player making a run. We're, I know we mentioned that Berrettini and Shapovalov might not have had the best game plans going forward, but how do you assess the plethora, maybe the, the pool, how deep it is of young male players trying to make their mark and, and break through finally? I think the men's side is set up really well right now. I would add to that Tsitsipas, who made the final of Roland Garros and, and played Novak valiantly. And the thing I like about Tsitsipas is the the varied game that he has. Um, Berrettini has, um, you know, he's an all-court player, but again, I'd like to see him come in more. Um, but the the great thing about these guys the Shapovalov the Medvedev the Berrettini the Tsitsipas is that they're characters and for somebody to be in my book for somebody to be like a gold-plated superstar you have to win you have to have an interesting game you have to have an interesting personality and you have to have an interesting backstory if you've got all four of those things then you're headed for superstardom so i think the men's side is really set up with a lot of those guys it's you add zverev to the mix medvedev who you mentioned there's not a shortage of players it's just it's like anything and we got spoiled by the big three but who's going to step up there's a lot of options there's a lot of opportunities there uh berrettini showing that he's consistent was a story for me the canadian breakthroughs as well with felix playing well and, and chapavalov so there's a lot to like with the young guys, but it's still Novak's tour, and uh, we, we haven't been mm -hmm. proven otherwise. Uh, Amy, as we look at the women's side, obviously the, the big news there, Ash Barty wins her first Wimbledon, her second Grand Slam title. Before we get to the Wimbledon thing, I, I just want to throw this at you. Do you remember four short months ago, maybe more, where everyone was questioning the legitimacy of Barty's ranking, why she's still considered the best player in the game, yada, yada, yada. I don't think those questions are being asked anymore. You can start with Miami, go to the clay court swing, and now at Wimbledon, we're seeing the premier, the best player in women's tennis, and, and above all else, maybe, a very likable person at that. Oh, I think it's fantastic for women's tennis that Barty is number one, and she won Wimbledon, her second slam. You know, there's a lot of talk about parity in women's tennis, and isn't it exciting? Isn't it great? You never know who's going to win a Grand Slam. I, I'm not big on that at all. I want to see rivalries like what we had during the Navratilova-Chris Everett era um, and what we have on the men's side right now. I think rivalries are really compelling and good for the game and bring in tons of people into tennis. And um, But we need for that to happen, we need someone to start winning multiple slams. So now you can envision, you know, Osaka, hopefully she, she gets back and, and is playing well and, and enjoying herself again and healthy. You can envision like an Osaka-Barty rivalry emerging, which could be really exciting. So I, I actually think it's great for women's tennis that Barty won and, as you said, solidified her number one ranking. 
I think there is a middle ground, not to like play both sides, but the Christy Martina level uh, rivalries were great, but I do get the sense, I get the fan bases that were like, this is all the time, we want something new. I get that. I also get what you're saying. I, you don't want a Grand Slam where 40 different women can win, and it's like a crapshoot. So I think that the WTA is in a good place since Serena has gotten older, had her child, the, the injuries have mounted up. She, no one has had a stranglehold on the game, but now we have a, a good depth of 8 to 10, I'd say, ladies that are in the mix. From those 8 to 10, Barty and Osaka have separated themselves, and Ash Barty becoming the, it's interesting, Osaka the premier player on hard court. Barty, Clay, and probably Grass has those services now. That Wimbledon run was very, very impressive. Even into the final, which we thought was going to be a bad final again, <laughs> it's right out the gate. We thought this is Pliskova in another final that can't get her footing. And, you know, to her credit, Carolina turned it around. But Barty's demeanor, you know, her ability to overcome adversity, to overcome setbacks, she kind of fumbles away that second set. No problem for her. I just, I love her athleticism, her variety, how she frustrates her opponents. But I think I just love her demeanor more than anything, that she's always engaged and doesn't let it snowball like a lot of players on both tours would. Yeah, and like I was talking about before, to the uh, formula for superstardom, the the backstory, the personality, the game, and the the winning, and um, her backstory is really good. How she had to take time off the tour and went and played cricket, and uh, it helps that, to be good at multiple sports. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. Just such well, an I think they should give <laughs> yeah. her like the Deion Sanders treatment now, yeah, and because <laughs> apparently, you know, she's good at golf too, and yeah, yeah. we we, we need the the uh, marketing departments of these uh, super uh, companies to yeah. come up with some really creative commercials around her. But um, she is headed toward gold plated superstardom, which will be great. And and then you know you throw uh, Coco Golf in the mix, who has all of that too, but she just hasn't won yet. She's young. She's young. Give her give her time. And I think you're right that women's tennis is really headed to a good place. I also love the reverence that she has for Wimbledon. That I think all Aussies seem to have for Wimbledon. It's their crown jewel. Uh, it's great to see the emotions when she won. It was a little different than Roland Garros, which I know was her first title, but winning Wimbledon is that much special. And I just also like, Amy, that you know you don't have to play a certain way. I think the men's tour kind of falls into this, like you know, you see this in other sports. A lot of kids grow up wanting to be like Steph Curry in basketball or wanting to be Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic in tennis. Ash Barty plays the game in a unique way, and, and you know I think it's good. It's, it's nice to see that, that, that there isn't just one path to success. Yeah, I really like what she does with her slice. I, I actually had the chance to ask her about this uh, a couple of years ago at Roland Garros, and it's more of a tactical weapon than you realize because it's not just um, using slice as, as a way to neutralize or defend on that wing, but it's basically part of the chess game putting your opponent in a pinning her in a spot where you're then looking for to finish her off with a forehand or a volley um so i don't know of maybe with the exception of anstrebor i don't know of anyone else that is using slice quite that way and it's exciting mm -hmm. mitch it's super <laughs> exciting it certainly is. Uh, we mentioned two Grand Slam titles, world number one, a couple premier WTA 1,000 events. I mean, that's that's a Hall of Fame career already. So I don't want to get ahead of yeah. myself. She's got a lot of tennis left, but she's already booked her, her ticket to Newport. 
So props to Ash Barty, still still so young in a lot of tennis and just a great states stateswoman for the game. Uh, the other story of this Wimbledon tournament to me was the Pliskovas and the Angie Kerbers, two players that are getting up there in tennis years. But, you know, I, and I think a lot of people would have counted them out for making a Grand Slam run, but they turned it around. They put together great tennis. They showed some things I think a lot of people wouldn't have expected. Two veterans that kind of just said, don't forget about us. We still have big match experience and can make deep runs in these tournaments. Yeah, those are, it's it's like two different cases there. Um, you know, Angie's won slams. And um, she kind of re-found her game again, which was great to see and, and very exciting. Um, and Angie is, you know, in, in so many ways, she's like Novak. I mean, she is a tough out. Um, and then Pliskova is somebody with um, weapons, major weapons like her serve. And uh, she has been, her level and her ranking has been so up there for so many years that um, you got to think it's just a matter of time before she wins a slam. She's somebody else who, like Berrettini, um, and I know she knows how to volley because she's a great doubles player. I would like her to, I would like to see her play certain patterns Mm -hmm. that allow her to approach and finish more. Pliskova showed a lot in that Sabalenka match who made her first deep run at a major as well, uh, battling yeah. back. That was fun, and it was good to see Sabalenka, another one in that top five range that is making a breakthrough, and we expect to see her deep at these tournaments. With Kerber, it's interesting, too, because a lot of people just left her for left her career for dead. Going into the, the tournament in Germany, the small one in her hometown, she wins that, goes on a run, double-digit win streak, and... The match particularly with her, Amy, was the Coco Golf match. That was just an experience win. That was a grittier, more experienced, tougher player that won the big points. Coco will get there. She's still super young. But it's it just kind of shows you that there's not just a, an elevator to success. You're going to have to take your lumps and, and go through your growing pains to get to the top, which we expect Coco to do. But there's going to be a lot of tough players like Angie Kerber in her way. Yeah, and development is not you know, um, a straight line. It's, it's a zigzag line. And the thing that people don't realize is that these players are making, um, they're growing, they're still working on their game. They're, they're not done. You know, the forehand isn't done. No, no, no. The serve is not done. I mean, I'm talking about even making grip changes, uh, minute yeah. though they may be. Well, if you they're look still at, working if, if you on their look game. At it's like dynamic. No, if you look at Novak Djokovic improving his game, then of course everyone's going to, you know, if you look at the best or, or tweaking things, then of course everybody else should be doing it too. Absolutely. And uh, so when you think of a player's development, if she's down for a while, just don't say, okay, well, she's done, she's out. Um, say maybe she's working on something or, or maybe there's something going on in her life and uh, and let's see what she can do. And I think um, that's what Angie did. And I'm look, really looking forward to seeing what she does going forward. The last thing on the women's uh, singles draw at Wimbledon, and because it's kind of turned into a, a non-Jabor appreciation podcast a little bit, but I've just been <laughs> so impressed with how she's played a pioneer for where she comes from and what she represents, but makes her best result at a major and uh, does it within, and I say this with complete, you know, adulation, just a completely different game than what we're used to seeing. I love watching her play. Just want to know if you had some thoughts on Anshabor, what she's done and, and what she can still do in tennis. 
I have been begging my friends to tune into her matches. And I've been saying for a year, this person is so entertaining and she is such a good athlete. I mean, she has got mad hops. She can get up. And uh, right now, Mitch, if I'm being honest, because I did chart one of her matches, I think she's still largely an improvisational player. She um, makes great shots, you know, just in the moment. And, and that makes her really exciting. But I think once she uh, brings discipline, a little more discipline in terms of patterns that she wants to play. And I, I happen to know uh, one of her coaches that does uh, analytics for her. So I know she uses the analytics. And once she gets that sort of her tactical game sort of hammered down, I think she's going to be super exciting, but I'm a huge fan of hers, huge fan. And and I kind of love what she does between points. Like you'll see her playing a little soccer with the tennis ball yeah. between points and, and stuff like that. So um, she's another one that has a tremendous backstory and has the potential for superstardom. Where she's at right now is a player that no one wants to see on their side of the draw. And no. um, you know, I just think it's cool. And it also shows you how the game of tennis has grown so much in the last 20, 30 years that she can come from her region of the world and have success. It's been pretty, pretty cool to see. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Amy Lundy on Tennis Channel Inside in on the Tennis Podcast Network. A couple more things before we wrap up this episode. Getting back to the big three, the two members that had their, had their moments at Wimbledon. In Roger's case, Nadal didn't play. The news for them, obviously the big story with Roger, Amy, is that he's not going to be playing the Olympics. And I don't think this surprises many people, but it was the one specific line in that statement, I had a setback with my knee. That's what's going to scare a lot of people. He's 39 going on 40 next month. You've been pretty vocal in your uh, stance that you don't think he's going to retire and he's not planning on doing it anytime soon. But what was your reaction to the decision and also the statement that he does have another issue with that knee? I wasn't surprised that there's something wrong with the knee because earlier in the tournament, I believe it was sometime in the first week, he was asked about the Olympics and he said something like, well, I'm going to have to sit down with the team and see how the, and then he stopped himself and he said something about, you know, the pandemic or something very general. And if you listen very closely, you could have sworn that he was about to say, see how the knee is doing. Oh, yeah, so up, yeah. you, you just kind of like, it, I, I'm wondering, Mitch, if, if it was ever 100%, if the knee has ever been 100%. But the only reason that I said I don't think that he has immediate plans to retire is I just listened to him. He was asked that and he said, no. Nope not ready yet um and and he's been asked uh, just a few times if he was going to retire within the next few months um i don't think he would talking he would be talking about um 
being better competitively or um, playing himself into better shape or, or that kind of thing. Um, the fact that he actually cares about the knee, um, I think, is a sign that he's probably not done yet. I agree with that, too. I think it could happen quickly. You know, th that would not shock me given his age and what's happened. But as of right now, there are no plans. The, the caveat being something could happen where he just says, yeah, I'm, now I'm ready. We've seen that with athletes before. It's just, I don't want to say funny or, or, or even sad, but it's just fascinating how this happens with sports, with athletes. You go from, I want them to win, I want them to make a deep run, to now going into tournaments. It's like, with this one, it's like, I just want him to get through it okay. I don't want him to have any any health hiccups or any issues with his knee. The, uh, the run to the quarterfinals, given what he's been through, is a heck of an accomplishment. But what we're seeing, Amy, is a guy who set the bar better than anyone in the history of this sport get bageled in the third set of, of a straight sets loss. So it's not so much the run, it's the, the taste in our mouth is he went out getting crushed, which we are not used to seeing at all. Yeah, I, I don't know, you know, what was going on with that, if, if the knee was a factor or, um, look, maybe Hubie just got to him and um, he was really feeling it, you know, mentally, who knows. Um, but still, a quarterfinal run at his age on a bum knee. I mean, do you know how many people in, in professional tennis would kill to have a quarterfinal run at Wimbledon? I mean, <laughs> they can't even sniff it. And yeah. and Roger Federer is doing that at almost 40 years of age on a bum knee. So um, there are many aspects to tennis, and he's still got it in many ways. Um, but, you know, we'll see. No idea. We'll see what happens. I'll let you guys cover that in detail on your podcast going forward because yeah. I know you'll have all the insight there. Uh, the big news with Nadal is that he's actually going to be playing the City Open in Washington, D.C. this year. So uh, I don't. it's fascinating that this is the first time he's coming here and taking the hard court season that early, but this is a very Rafa-like decision. Take a lot of time off, miss a lot of events, the whole uh, grass court mini season and the Olympics, and then hit the ground running when you know he's been putting the work in at home. So I'm not... I'm not surprised by this, and I would expect, based on the track record of Nadal st stops and starts, to have some pretty good results in the summer hardcourt swing in, the, in North America. Isn't it interesting, Mitch? <laughs> he's not just going to hand everything to Novak. He's back in not. training. I mean, he is monster competitor, and I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, uh, look, uh, I, I'm one who always says that Rafa, his accomplishments on hard court, particularly some of the slower hard courts, are unsung and, and underplayed. He's not just a clay quarter. So um, he's won a couple of U.S. Opens in the last few years. So uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that. And, and uh, if you get Rafa and Novak on opposite sides of the draw of the U.S. Open, that could be uh, a fun thing to follow. Yes, yes, I agree. His hardcourt resume, Nadal's, is underrated if that's even possible. And you're not going to count this guy out, and he's not handing everything over. But this is my big caveat. It's been a long time since Nadal's beaten Djokovic on hardcourt. And I know that they don't have to play each other. There could be upsets. Things could happen. But I know if they face each other on hardcourt, and you probably can't say this about anybody else, Djokovic has no fear at all of Rafael Nadal. Not afraid. Will raise his level. 
So that's what would worry me about the matchup on hard court is that Novak is just so elite on that surface and knows that he's had his number for almost the last decade. But at the same time, Mitch, if there's any other player in all of tennis that you'd rather have playing Novak, you know, right. would it be would it be Berrettini? Would it be Tsitsipas? Yeah. Or would yeah. you rather have Rafa there? It's true. You know, and, you know he's and, not going to be afraid. And what you want is, is a really good match, like a humdinger of a match. I uh, The guy I want out there is Rafa. So. Yeah, you know, no matter how many times he loses, Nadal's not going to be afraid. He's going to go right back to the well. And if it is 2020 and that's the U.S. Open final, <laughs> I mean, I mean that's, yeah. that, that says itself. <laughs> uh, very, yeah. very impressive stuff. Uh, Amy Wendy, this was a fun chat. Appreciate you coming on Tennis Channel Inside. And I do want to mention one thing in particular, too, as we wrap this up. You know, with the tennis season still going on, it's Hall of Fame week at Newport, and uh, two pioneers of the game and, and interesting players in their own right are getting inducted from last year, Goran Ivanisevic and Conchita Martinez. And they, they were players that polar opposites in a lot of ways, but but got to that top of the mountain and, and really did it in unique and interesting ways. We were just talking about Goran's Wimbledon run from 20 years ago, and I will probably never see anything like it in the sport ever again. Yeah, boy, it was a different game back then, wasn't it? I mean, so much centered around the serve, and um, he was the master. I mean, it was it was just incredible. And uh, Conchita, the you know the thing that I love about both of them is that they're both still involved in the sport. Yeah, I mean, the, as coaches, and um, it's fantastic. Um, but I, I just think that um, tennis is one of those sports where um, you can go in and you can make your mark like they did. And then um, you're not forgotten yeah. and, and people think fondly of you. And then you can come back and, and contribute again as they have as coaches. Goran and Conchita both, you know, I love the quote by Goran where he said, this is the end of my chapter as a player. Like I'm still involved in the game, but this is the, the final chapter of my book as a player. Both have coached great players, Djokovic and Muguruza, and they've made a difference, too. They got to them when they needed some work, and they, they tweaked some things there. In Kachita's case, too, I just want to add, she didn't grow up with any she didn't grow up with any Spanish tennis players that had really like been pioneers. Like she was her and Sanchez Vicario were the first ladies to really break through on that side. So trendsetters and groundbreakers as well for what she did for her country and her sport. Absolutely. And um, I, I'm very inspired by Conchita um, and not just as a player, but as a coach as well. Um, she was working with Pliskova for, for a while and um, it was great to see what, what she could bring in terms of, um, you know, not just uh, I think you should play this way or I think you should do that, but in terms of um, her mental approach to the game and, and her fight, and um, I, I, I just think that ten, this is this. I mean, you don't really get this in basketball as much or football, and and when you can see great players come back and and contribute to other great players, I think it's a lot of fun. It's a very good point. You, you don't see the perennial all-star Hall of Famer type players in other sports get back in the game whether it's money or just not wanting to go through the day-to-day -day grind tennis for in all its glory. One of the best things is that the very best want to still be a part of the action and, and miss that competitive drive. Uh, Amy Lundy, thanks again for joining Tennis Channel Inside In. We're going to expect a lot more out of you guys from three now that we have all three of them <laughs> tied with 20 Grand Slams, but I know it's going to be a busy summer for you. 
Oh, we're here. <laughs> we're looking forward to it. We're in our heyday right now. So uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Amy Wandy on Tennis Channel Inside In. A reminder, you can catch all these episodes as well as other podcasts, including three on the Tennis Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcasts. We'll be back next week with more interviews and access to players, journalists, coaches, and commentators in the sport that we all know and love. For Amy Wandy, I'm Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.